Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. With the start of the new year and in light of current events in the capital of the United States, we believe that it's time for a profound change. In this episode, we meet Amin Hussein and Natasha Dillon, members of the action-oriented collective The Colonize This Place. They tell us why they use museum spaces as a focal point of resistance and what are the urgent, most pressing issues and injustices in New York and beyond. Hi Natasha, hi Amin. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, We really appreciate your time. Uh, Your peaceful protest-minded actions aim to start conversations against racism, colonialism, and other pressing issues of our times. Can you please tell us um, how Decolonize This Place is advocating in the time of crisis and uh, more about the idea of art washing? Uh, first of all, thank you so much for having us here. Um, so, I mean, uh, all these things that you mentioned for us, it's been a journey, you know, to kind of arrive at these points. Uh, you, we were part of Occupy Wall Street and, you know, with Occupy Wall Street, we started working towards, you know, income inequality or like the idea of like, you know, one percenter sitting on the board of our institutions. Right. So at that time we were talking about, you know, MoMA, like locking out its art handlers or these, you know, and now we can think about Warren Candace or all these other people on the board of our museums. And that was really the conversation we were having around that time. Time. But as we started learning from the movements and the failures of our movements, you know, with Black Lives, you know, in 2014, and then also with um, Standing Rock in uh, uh, 2016, and doing a lot of, uh, you know, BDS, which is the Boycott, Divestments, and Sanctions work for Palestine in the art world, one of the things I think that we realized for ourselves is that we cannot work in issue silos, right? These All these things are connected. And that's when we kind of started thinking about decolonization and then started thinking about what does it mean to think about decolonization in the context of settler coloniality and how do institutions operate um, within that. And so in some ways, what we've been trying to do is bring that conversation into an action and like not just a theoretical argument in, you know, in these ways. And so uh, we started with, um, you know, de- like we decolonize this place, the group that we're part of. It has six strands of struggle. Um, first, first is indigenous sovereignty. Second is black liberation, free Palestine, um, global wage workers, degentrification and dismantling patriarchy. And so all of these kind of worked together. And this also comes from our experience of organizing in the art world, also around, let's say, Gulf labor, which was another movement that happened around the Guggenheim and the Louvre, Abu Dhabi, and you know NYU. And I think that that's the kind of point where we're at right now, where for us, it's not that you, know, you need diversity into these institutions or that you need like more people of color into these institutions, but we really need to think about the role that these cultural institutions have in our society today. So like, you know, when we're thinking about, let's say a place like the Brooklyn Museum, which already, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of both a contemporary art institution and also something like, you know, which mirrors like 
something like American Museum of Natural History or mirrors these uh, institutions which have been sites of eugenics and have been holding these, you know, artifacts and remains and, and basically spiritual uh, things from, you know, people. Um, the, the kind of question around what happens with these, you know, with these, these conversations around racism or gender, all of that is much more happening from a structural level, right? And so one example would be, you know, the thinking that we've had is, uh, do we really need, do we need curators in the same role? Do we need artists to be performing the same role? Um, do we need the board of directors or executive directors? Um, we know that the root of the term curator comes from this idea of care, right? So is there actually care within this art system? Is there care on like how we're actually operating? Do we need another board of director who is a person of color or do we actually need to completely eliminate that position? And so I think that like, you know, over time, we've actually started thinking about decolonization in, in conversation with abolition and then what kind of spaces that we need so it's not just about the negation of these institutions but also affirmation on the spaces that we need which are outside these you know kind of colonial time and space we kind of try to highlight in our work is the fact that the instrumentalization of artists right in other words an institution is a reflection of society in the context of the United States, museums are part of how settler colonialism promulgates itself and how racialized capitalism continues and how pedagogy of a, comes from a certain class, right? And how everyone wants to be represented in a place like the Whitney, but only a few people can make it. And they tend to make art for people who then can buy it who have money to pay a million dollars or $20 million. And I don't think anything should be worth $20 million, but it's where they hide their money for tax evasion purposes. And, and so I buy an Andy Warhol and I say, I'm gonna value it at 20 million or whatever Sotheby's does when I buy it. But then it's okay because what they've done is like, someone else will buy it for 22 million. It's amongst 10 or 20 people, right? And so it retains its value. That's an economy that artists are not processing. But then they make paintings about black kids being murdered on the streets of New York City. There's a problem between making a painting that says it's political and then the person that's buying it is the person that's funding the police that shot them. This is not unique to the art world. We had movements that didn't separate politics from art. The surrealists were instrumental in that thing. Situationists as well for May 68. So what we're, we're following, you know, a legacy of thinking where art needs to measure up to us, not the other way around. Fuck the market. And what we are telling these institutions who want our work is this isn't about us wanting a painting on a white wall. This is us saying you are part of either the problem or the solution because we know you're not neutral. Universities are the same way. That doesn't mean me and Natasha are pure. We're both you know, we're complicit in oppression because we live in a society in which we have to do certain things. I have to teach. So I work for NYU that puts a bunch of students in debt. But what they're teaching students is, is terrible. 
They're teaching them about freedom when they're actually taking freedom from them. That's what we're trying to point out. And when we do an action, we're really building relationships and we're creating transformative spaces and we're thinking about moments of rupture in which we can relate to each other differently. And there's something about that that allows for the refusal, that allows for the imagination. And, and these are why aesthetics are so important. But consistently, power has always tried to get artists on their side. Because artists are through a process can actually try with others to imagine something different. And now they just want to push people to keep doing the same nonsense. And then you get happy because you have a sculpture in the park that makes no sense to my lived experience. And you're telling me that's art. And we're telling them, fuck off. Thank you for your insightful answers, Amin and Natasha. Let's speak about nine weeks of art and action held at the Whitney Museum and uh, your following protests at the Brooklyn Museum and the American Museum of Natural History and why you have chosen art and cultural institutions as a revolutionary stage in the first place. Um, I think I'll begin from like, you know, why art institutions? I think one of the things that, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things that is there is that these art institutions are mirror of our societies, right? Um, they're not separate from any other systems in, the, in, in that way. They work similar to, you know, what universities do or other, you know, corporations do. And you see that, especially, you know, as I said, when you see the people sitting on these boards or who dictates what even art is or like who dictates how the economy of art works or how we even even think about aesthetics. So it's not just at the level of this intellectual or economical or like, you know, just in, you know, it's at the level of aesthetics and how we sense this world. Right. And so it's, it's operating on that level. So when you think that something like that has that much power as artists, we also have power within us to change that and to and to and to basically refuse that system because in the refusal of these systems we have power to then imagine something new a world that is yet to be many worlds that can be right and so if, if you say no to a certain system of like you know you can say form content any of these things then you can really open up the space for what freedom could look like or the practice you know the training and practice of freedom that's something that we talk about the process of really imagining um things differently and so art institutions for us, I think, are really important because of that, because they allow this space, mainly also because I think, you know, when you're you know, out in the streets, what happens is you end up, um, it, the, the whole conversation really becomes between the protester and the state. And that's mainly because of how the media operates. And there isn't this kind of way to push through some of these conversations around decolonization that can be done through these cultural institutions or universities also. So it's not just, you know, about art institutions in that way. So for example, I would say, you know, the way that we think about this American Museum of uh, Natural History, that's one example. It's uh, one of the uh, largest museums in New York City. It's the most funded by the city. It's a public institution. Um, it has been an institution that has, you know, ha had the movement of eugenics, uh, you know, that started from there. Uh, we call it a hall of white supremacy. The way it classifies people into different categories, their cultures, you know, their being, their histories. It really is just, you know, uh, the colonial gaze and all of these things that we know. But it's not that, you know, it, we know, we understand that. 
but what can we do with that space once we once we decide to do an action there and i think that's really why we choose these places not because it's just that oh you know american museum of natural history decolonized but it also becomes a place for us to build the relations that we want amongst each other and an affirmation of the world that we want right so this is something that uh, grace lee boggs talks about the idea of visionary organizing versus reactionary organizing visionary organizing being something that is not react to these systems but also builds things for ourselves so when we go into these institutions it's not just like it's it's also an affirmation of like what kind of you know kind of relationality that we want with each other but also what debts do we owe to each other like what is the role of me as an immigrant working on stolen land what is my responsibility towards indigenous sovereignty what is you know what is the role of me as an immigrant working into a system which is built on enslaved people what is the role of other people and their solidarity towards me as an immigrant who's trying to survive under let's say the trump administration or any of these you know laws so it's not like that's what i'm trying to say it's not this issue silo but we really need to connect these struggles and think through it because one of the things that the colonizer does is that it does not want us to talk to each other it treats each of these things separately and that's when we lose our power right so with these with with this with with specifically the american museum of natural history it really provides us a place where we all have the space to talk to each other <laughs> because it's it's really a mission of western civilization colonizing the rest of the world if you walk through any of those halls african halls asian halls the looting that has happened um the way they write their sentences you know indigenous people are put in the past palestinians are erased and like you know israelis are made indigenous into the land you really see the structures of power operating in the kind of language and then you have almost all new york city public school students go into that institution and take a tour that's mandatory so this is also not you know it's it, the pedagogy and all of that is involved with this so then what we did was we started doing these tours inside the museum and then also start talking about this monument that's outside the museum right which is this teddy roosevelt monument he's the 26th president of the united states with an indigenous and a, and a black man standing next to him as if they're going towards on this project of you know settler colonization of the american dream or any of these things you can say so when we did these tours inside it was also flipping on the logic of what that institution is doing so we asked for three demands one was uh removing the statue which you know just talked about uh renaming the day because new york city still has columbus day so we you know indigenous peoples day and lastly respecting the ancestors which is a much more broader demand to completely overhaul how that institution works um and you know this is something that we really think about in our actions is that ask the possible but also what is the impossible because then it questions power and it also allows us to not get co-opted in ways and allows us to keep moving and to keep that radical possibility open and so um you know with institutions like american museum natural history over 30 groups over the last 4 years have come together to do these actions in the first uh, year you know we only had 200 people the last one that we did we didn't do one in 2020 the last one that we did in 2019 there was about 1000 people but that was also the first time as you know because because movements keep moving and we learn from them but for the first time we actually talked about decolonization and abolition together which was not the case in the movement spaces or even in the art sectors or even the universities you know these panels all of that really treat them separately or like you know if there's an abolitionist conversation is just going to be about the carceral state or it's a decolonization conversation like you know they 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 really play all of this more into an identity politics kind of an approach versus a structural approach and so when we start thinking about you know these things 
then you actually start thinking about the future that you want to imagine. And do these institutions really need to even exist for us in this way? So it's not just like a reform of these institutions, but really imagining how do we hold memory? How do we gather? How do we think about aesthetics? What do we need to be able to live and dream and imagine? And how do we actually work from a place of desire versus pain and, you know, and trauma? And I think that's really the work that we've been trying to think about because there's so much organizing, so much art, so much films, whatever media you want to say that come from a place of pain versus desire. And I think that's, that's the place that we're thinking about in terms of organizing. And so that was the American Museum um, of Natural History. I mean, you want to pick up and then I can add for, I, I could talk about nine weeks as well. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think you're doing so well, you should continue. Well, I mean, so I, 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 I okay, so I, I, maybe I'll add for the nine weeks of art okay. and action. So, I mean, so, I mean, from, from, from the American Museum of Natural History, that's where we built these relations with 30 groups and we learned about each other. We learned about each other's struggle. We enacted that in the space. I mean, it was a, like the third anti-Columbus Day tour we did. It was one of the most beautiful experiences I've ever had in my life. We had... Uh, we had this thing called the decolonial gathering where everybody sat together, a thousand people under this, you know, canoe in the Northwest Park and talked about like, what is the harm that these places have done and how can we actually come together? And so I think that was kind of the spirit that we were already rolling on. And then when, you know, we learned that, uh, you know, uh, it was hyperallergic that broke the news that the, you know, Warren Candace, who's, you know, he's, was he the chair? I can't even remember. He was board of trustees, right? He was, or was he? No, he wasn't the vice president. That's Brooklyn Museum. No, vice, vice president of the board of yeah, trustees. He was, yeah, he was the vice president of the board of trustees, produces tear gas, which is then used on the border on Mexico, where, you know, the Honduras caravan was coming in. Um, and uh, once that happened, uh, about a hundred staff uh, from the Whitney released a letter uh, about, you know, how, like not feeling safe while working in that institution because a lot of people in that staff are immigrants, are like native people, are, you know, are, are black folks who don't feel safe, especially with somebody who is a weapons manufacturer. Their tear gas is used not just in Mexico, in, you know, in Palestine, Turkey, Egypt, in the prisons here in the United States, um, funding equipment to the NYPD. And so once that came about, that was one of the places we actually decided not to do anything. We didn't want to do anything, but everybody was like, you know, everybody's looking out for you guys and like how how is decolonized this place going to respond to that and for us it was once again this moment of thinking about how can we think about not this not just in terms of a crisis but as a project of decolonization because what happens is like i mean i think even in the art world and you're seeing this at world in large we're moving from one crisis to the other and that's how we keep moving you know, today it's like, oh, that was a white curator. Oh, that person censored my thing. Oh, it's like Palestine boycott thing happened. This, it, it's almost become this news you can, you know, predict happening. And so then uh, is our reaction going to be always just feeding into that? Or are we actually going to start thinking about how do we organize in a way where it's not just about this one problem of war and candor in the Whitney, but the whole Whitney as an institution and how it operates. And so that was kind of like the basis of how we wanted to start. And so we thought about nine weeks um, because we said, okay, nine weeks, first week is crisis, the last week is decolonization. And that's how we wanted to think about it. So what you saw during the nine weeks was people coming from different contexts, Puerto Rico, Palestine, uh, you know, Sudan as well, university students, thinking about how does that institution specifically impact their realities 
and what does that do? So in some ways you can think about it as like power mapping and how the institutions operating on these different levels, including gentrification, and then what is our response to it? What's critical about what Decolonize This Place has done is that these actions require organizing to bring different groups that are immediately impacted and affected. So there isn't someone representing another. You facilitate a space. The second thing that's really important about what we are doing is that these acts are transgressive. They are without permission. They're, they set up a confrontation and they create a crisis for the institution and a decision dilemma that they have to make. Either they, you know, you are progressive and you get people arrested and harmed, or you allow us to take over the institution, right? This is a choice that they are left to take. And so far, you know, we've had arrests, but never inside a museum. And we've shut down the Guggenheim, we've shut down the Whitney, we've gone into their floors where they had a very expensive art. All of these things have consequences. They have consequences in terms of who's lending them the art, and they, they feel like maybe their art is not safe. They have insurance, they need to stay in control of, of the building. If it's not in control of the building, it's also a problem. These, so, so this is not performative. That's, that's really important. This is not a performance. This is not, uh, you know, this is not a, you know, I don't know, something made for cameras. Things are a byproduct, but ultimately, the, whether we, we measure success, by the kind of organizing and relations and the change upon which the conversation is being had. So that what was most important to us in the Whitney is like, let's point out how a progressive institution that all our community wants to belong to, right? That's your badge of honor in the United States. It's the American Museum, that's the Whitney. It's the most progressive. Both Natasha and I graduated from the Whitney Independent Study Program. So it's important to say that we're not outside of this community. We're in fact holding it accountable, right? And so we have a relationship and we have a responsibility and we, from there we have agency to act. So when we went after Warren Candors, it was only because the organizing inside happened. But then strategically what was really important is to point out that decolonization, which is the unsettling of everything, isn't just colonial stuff that happened in the past. It's contemporary art, right? It's this person that does all these things in the world and then funds shit that goes up in the Whitney. It's the conversation we had before. And why do they do that? So they can have cocktails with others and sip on them. This guy lives 10 blocks away from the Whitney, Whitney program, Whitney Museum. And then what they're doing is that they're art washing their reputations so that they're not killers. So they don't suffocate babies. So they don't make, so that they, they're, they're not creating the one thing. If, if tear gas is less lethal, but if you're not gonna blow up a, a cop car and you're not going to do all of these other things, what are you gonna do? You're gonna protest with your bodies in the street. That's where tear gas gets used, right? So it's literally a counter expression thing. 
in our, in our Whitney Progressive Museum, these people determine what aesthetics is. That's what they do. And people like us will never get invited to the Whitney. And we're fine with that. In fact, if they, we have friends who got invited after the fact because that's what they do. They try to pick people off. Shailene Rodriguez is a person right after all of this happening, a painter who got invited to the Whitney and she said no. So the other thing I want to say is like, we look at museums because we relate to them and they're part of our community, not necessarily the people on the board of trustees, but the aspiration and vision of what that is. And the fact that we are also one of the identities we hold are we are artists and filmmakers. And for us, that means that we actually are not outsiders to this institution and we're not picking on them. We're just asserting our voice as well. It becomes important, why? Because from the organizing side of things, people like, look, they make shows all the time. You look at the show, you don't know what the hell it's about, but then they have programming around it and you're like, oh my God, it's about capitalism. <gasps> it's about this and that. And what, where does it happen? It happens from the education and the programming. What we're trying, what we do in the organizing though, is we say, look at this institution. It has workers, it has front end and back end. It has stuff that's being created that's directly linked to the market that's linked to taxes, that this Whitney Museum right now, pipelines are coming underneath it that are destroying, the spectra pipelines that are destroying the environment. They have funding that's coming from the city. They, all the galleries that displace people via gentrification is because of the Whitney. All of that is happening. We get to talk about that when we go after the Whitney. We dissolve the boundaries of the institution and we lay it bare. So we get to talk about capitalism and an agent of gentrification and what the role of art is in our lives and why certain communities are being excluded. It makes everything tangible. When things are tangible, you're able to act against it. And when you level blows, you send out signals in the world that can ultimately result in us having this conversation that isn't commodified. And that's what we're doing, part of what we're doing. You sort of covered this next question of mine, but uh, maybe we could talk about it in more um, general terms. Uh, and I would love to know both of your opinions on in what way uh, should dialogues on agency and activism shift within the art world? Well, you know, I think uh, Amin touched on it briefly, but I think we can expand on it. I think uh, there's many factors to it, right? And I think, like, first, like, you know, activism within the art world, I think one of the things that we've learned is uh, it's very easy for it to get co-opted into the art system again, right? So, for example, the Whitney Museum would gladly have, like, you know, I think it, uh, it, it, like while we were doing the nine weeks of art and action, it actually documented the whole action. They actually had a designated uh, videographer who came and filmed. 
we won't be surprised that if one, 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 one year later, they have a show on like all the actions that have had happened at the Whitney or even with all these institutions, like, you know, the Brooklyn Museum, for example, they did this uh, black radical women's show. And like, you know, I went to see it in Buffalo, not in Brooklyn. And they had like documents of, uh, of actions that had happened at the Brooklyn Museum in the 60s. Uh, by you know by, by, by black artists at that point so I mean the, the, that's the first thing to understand that you know we might think that oh just because the institution you know, like, like these actions they can easily come into it second thing is I think like you know now I mean in, it's, it's different but like with the age of fascism everywhere but with what was happening in the United States specifically with Trump that was becoming an easy way to call things activism. You make art around Trump, that's political art, and then that gets brought into these institutions. But it wasn't really questioning um, the core structures of the problems that exist within these institutions, which I you know, referred to. So there was like, I think, what do we even call this, this, this idea of professionalization of things and like, you know, this professionalization of activism. And so one of the things that we say is we actually need to put that under erasure. We need to, you know, put art under erasure, activism under erasure, all of these things, because for us, it's really more about how do we live and like, how are we thinking about these spaces in the context of that? Um, so I think that, uh, you know, and I mean, think about this right now. There's how many MFAs in art activism right now? Where are these people getting their jobs? <laughs> it's actually astonishing. Now there's like NYU has an MFA in art activism. West Coast people are, and I'm sure they exist everywhere. So the specialization of kind of activism that then goes from art institutions to universities, you know, because um, that's kind of connected. I think that's the first thing that we should be very wary of, like, you know, and so that's one. The second thing is, I think uh, we need to really, as artists, really focus on what is the role of our, of art and artists themselves, right? So who are we making, who is our, I mean, the question about who's our audience has always been, a big one not that we need to ask that question in that way but what what are the means of how we're making this art what is the role of the artist today in this kind of system right can the artist be a clog can it really you know bend the system can it survive outside the system and then you know with these things i start thinking about you know fred Morin and stefano horney and their idea of the undercommons right which is you work within the institutions then take resources from it to do something else and so really how can artists really think about the art institutions being an undercommons and i haven't really seen a lot of that except for political you know like except for organizers or artists who are thinking outside of that realm and just really do not care about being part of this art system because you know if you want to make it into the gallery system you have to follow a certain aesthetic you have to follow a certain line you have to follow these exhibitions and you know there's there's a trajectory for you there's a there's a way to make it um so i think and 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 and, and i think professional activism also plays into that now specifically after the george george floyd moment in the united states you're seeing every institutions put out a, a, a you know a statement on racism everyone did did they actually enact it? Did anything change in the power structures? No. <laughs> and even, you know, like, and, and even now you're going to see more shows by artists of color. That's just going to become the norm. But really, what is our, like, and I think this is something like, what are we aspiring to? Are we aspiring to be participating in that system? Are we aspiring to be assimilated? Are we actually aspiring to create our own and change that? Because it's not that it's, you know, the structure in itself is whiteness. It's not just about whiteness in terms of the skin color, but it's also about the structure of whiteness that we live with. And how do we change that versus assimilating in that or participating in that? And how can an artist do that? And I think that's, yeah, I'll just leave it at that.
if you look at the history of decolonize this place, which actually the name comes from action, but then we were offered a gallery exhibition because of the work that we've done outside of it, which is organizing and, and, and you know, aesthetics, movement generated art, movement generated aesthetics. That's what we, we, you know, and it was artist space and they offered us a three month exhibition and they offered us a significant budget and artist space was two floors with about 10 workers um, and their rent in Tribeca was $18,000 a month. So if you, if you value that, they gave us $60,000 of space in a very strategic location. And they gave us the, probably the same amount in terms of money. And they were giving us a show and we sat down with them and we said, we can't do a show, but we can take the space and the resources and here's what we can do. We can do a movement commons where it has programming and we'll, you know, it will be around these six strands of struggle and we'll have, you know, film screenings with dumplings, free dumplings, and we'll have conversations around these strands of struggle. But our intention was to use these resources and redistribute them. So when we brought others, right, we gave them honorariums. And when we had these conversations and produced these kind of things, we used the space with others. And the whole point was to create a decolonial formation in the city. That's what we did. We built power and we built relations. Then we were able to challenge Brooklyn Museum and to challenge the AMNH and to challenge the Whitney. So there needs to be a change and how artists don't think of themselves as individuals, don't think of themselves as like singularities where they have something profound to say. Everything's already been said. John Cage said it fucking 80 years ago. There is no, you know, this mastery of something. And I think this is what Natasha was, you know, can talk more about. Like people want to read, you can read The Darker Side of Modernity by Walter Mignolo. Like you, people need to read not reproduce nonsense. Artists like to be close to power <laughs> and they end up making things look beautiful or pretty, but they actually do harm. And sometimes there's so much ego involved in it. And I think that when you have a place like artists, you know, artist space come to us, they've never prior to us never did a show that, didn't, that they didn't spend $20,000 just to put stuff on a wall so, so how can we, who are engaged with people on the ground, allow that to happen? There were fights. But by the end of it, the curator wasn't a curator. The curator was a participant. The director was part of the conversation. We were learning about what an Excel spreadsheet does, and we were translating things for them. And it wasn't even wage. Where Here we have a standards wage certification where if someone does a performance, depending on how much the institution makes or gets, they need to give this much to the artist. We were fighting against that as well, because that's a structure that would have distributed $60,000 like this. So, so what does movement economics and solidarity economics look like, right? That's a responsibility that we have, and I think that we can fail, but we have to try.
right? Now those conversations become not commodified. They're a conversation amongst us, just like the conversation that we're having right now. Like we want to learn about what you're doing and what your, what your struggles are. It's not just a one-way thing. This is where the thing is happening. Everything else is just like signals in the world. I'm very curious. Uh, what are your next actions related to fighting current injustices? In 2020, we've decided to take a step back a little bit. And I think what we're really thinking about right now is how are we going to build? Because what I think Corona as a reality shows you specifically is like, uh, you know, with, with everything that happened, most of the institutions, how many of them lost their workers? Education departments are completely wiped out. Um, I think what we're seeing is that art is measuring up more for like, you know, where money is going to move versus what, you know, art should be in moments like this. Uh, words like, you know, mutual aid and, you know, are going thrown, being thrown around in like charity models and things like that. And then, like, as I already mentioned with the George Floyd moment, you know, you're already seeing this mention of, uh, um, uh, of, of racism, but really nothing's really going on. So I think for us in terms of the next step is really thinking about all these open files that we have and seeing, you know, what makes sense, but also simultaneously, um, I think we're interested in building and building spaces, building, in, you know, infrastructure, building education, building um, aesthetics, thinking about aesthetics differently. And I think that's really the place where we are because we also need to live and breathe. <laughs> and this system is not allowing us to do at, that at all. And not that we want to call it art or anything, but really like I think figuring out ways to be able to live within this madness uh, um, and really protecting our own with care and love. I think that's really where we're putting um, a lot of our energies into. Yeah. One project that we've been working on that's pro that got delayed by the pandemic is um, a movement space in Palestine that is art and culture that'll be connected to the work that we're doing in, in Brooklyn. So we're, we're beginning to kind of focus on the creation of infrastructure. And the way this is happening is that, you know, we have a home there and we have some land and we're thinking about how do you, you know, just kind of create it, take it outside of capitalism. And then you, you created a place by which, you know, both of you can visit and, and, and not be on tourists, but actually come where you share experiences, you learn, and we build these bridges. Because we need physical space. It can't be underestimated. The thing, the reason why decolonization is so important is because it recenters land. Land is where it's at. These, these digital spaces, they're not, they, they increase alienation. They, they, they're not real, they're not touched. And my final question is, and really please feel free to answer in whatever way you want to answer it. Um, what language does resistance speak in the world of art? And can it really make a change? People today don't realize that freedom does require sacrifice. It, it's uncomfortable. That doesn't mean that you die or you go to prison. No, these are not what we're talking about. What's the, what's the poem, Natasha? You should share, share the poem, the Turkish poem. Oh, it's called On Living? On yeah. Living? 
that you must share it in the link. That it's, uh, that it's such a serious matter. <laughs> yeah, like it's a serious, like living is a serious matter, right? And I think that we have to take that seriously. And then all of a sudden, just think about it. You can sit in a studio and think about like, what do I want to make? Oh my God, what kind of relationship do I want to create with reality that's different or new? Or how do I change form? Or you can just be in touch with reality and, and, and try to express the things that you are feeling and other people are feeling. It's just different ways. And one of them, you're just in your head. And, and I don't know how that ever gives anyone any joy. Natasha, I mean, thank you so much for this inspiring conversation. Uh, we are big fans of Decolonize This Place. Uh, what you're doing is brave and genuine and timely, and we're looking forward to staying in touch and supporting your projects in whatever way we could. Thank you. <laughs>